Well, you can open your Bibles to John chapter 20, and we're going to begin by reading the first nine verses. So you either can turn your phone on to John chapter 20, or open your Bible there and read along with me. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and I don't know where they've put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stood and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said, Jesus must rise from the dead. And then they went home. Last week, we looked at the cross and tried to answer the question, what does the cross mean? As we look at the Gospel of John. Today we're going to do the same thing with the resurrection. You may notice that in the next couple of months, we're going to be moving around in John. So for any of you that are kind of saying, I thought we were going chapter by chapter, and now we seem to be bouncing all over the place. And the reason for that is because we wanted to allow the different sections of John to fit into the church calendar a little bit better. So, if I would have been going chapter by chapter today, I would have preached a sermon of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, only for in a couple of weeks from now it to be Palm Sunday, and for us to do that all again. And in a couple of chapters from now, Jesus does an extensive teaching on the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to save that section for Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit. So just in case you're wondering why we're moving around, we are moving around just because we're going to try to match up some of the different sections in John with the different times in the church calendar. And so I thought it would be good to contrast last week's message on the importance and the implications of the cross by looking at what the cross led to, and that is the resurrection. And asking the same question that we asked last week, what does the resurrection mean? What did the resurrection accomplish? Uh, When we think about the resurrection, it can overwhelm the senses. It's something that is almost unbelievable. A guy coming back from the dead. When John writes, he says in verse 8 that when he reached the tomb and found it empty, he saw and believed. And yet, in the very next verse, we read that they still did not understand from Scripture 
that Jesus had to rise from the dead. There's this tension, even with Jesus' resurrection, of understanding and not understanding, of believing and not believing. And when we go through the Gospel of John, we find this theme to be there repeatedly with Jesus' miracles, with Jesus' teachings, and even now at the end with his resurrection. There is something about the overwhelmingness of what has happened and is happening that it causes people to believe on one hand, but on the other hand to make you go, what is this all about? We need to sympathize a bit more with those first disciples who ran into the tomb. And sometimes we've heard the story so many times as Christians that we've become a bit desensitized to it. And that can be a disservice to the shock and awe and the overwhelmingness of what it would have been like to have thought that your Savior, the one who had come and you had seen just be crucified, all of a sudden to be told and now see the evidence before your eyes that this one is no longer in the tomb. They believed, but they still did not understand. It reminds me of another part of Jesus' story. This one is picked up in Matthew, and that is when Jesus is about to ascend into heaven before the disciples' very eyes. This is after he rose from the dead. He's been with them for 40 days. He's going to ascend into heaven, and this is what we read. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Do you ever notice those three words in that sentence? I remember the first time I saw that, I just scratched my head and said, how can you doubt? Jesus has risen from the dead. He's been with you for 40 days. Now he's standing on a mountain. You're going to see him fly up into heaven. People around you are worshiping him as the Lord, and yet some, even after all of that, they stood there going, I'm not really sure about this. I don't, remember, I'm not, I don't know what's going on here. Maybe I had a bad sleep last night. But some doubted. I think that we forget how unbelievable these events really are. And when something is so unbelievable as like a man coming back from the dead that it challenges every single one of your preconceived ideas about how the world runs, it's very difficult to just change your mind. The Bible doesn't conceal the fact that at this moment, Jesus' disciples believed and doubted. Believed and did not understand. Jesus' death and resurrection are the most significant events in history. The New Testament is essentially written to try to help us understand the importance of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And there have been various attempts throughout church history to try to understand the full implications 
of what happened, what God did through Jesus' death and resurrection. In theological circles, we have the ransom theory. We have the satisfaction theory, the governmental theory, the substitutionary atonement theory, the penal substitutionary atonement theory, the moral example theory, Christ the victor theory. We've got all of these different attempts to try to understand what happened on the cross and in Jesus' resurrection. And every single one of them taps into things that did happen. And yet no one theory can accomplish explaining everything. Everyone sheds light on it, but no one says it all. And in fact, even when we put them all together, there's still so much more. We can never fully understand the cross and the resurrection. And so therefore, I propose to you that there is actually a healthy aspect of believing and doubting. And of believing and not fully understanding. The danger with believing and thinking you understand it all is that it allows for no more room for growth. No more room to be surprised no more room to be just a simply overwhelmed. This kind of lack of understanding is not unbelief. The disciples that came and worshipped and some doubted were not disciples that were not believing. Obviously they could believe what happened. It's the kind of doubt and lack of understanding that we see in the Psalms. It's the kind that's essential to a healthy faith. It's the kind that faithful men and women throughout the Bible have always had. It's the doubt that spurs you on to keep learning, growing, experiencing, understanding, knowing. You think of any great inventor, or any person who has any skill in sports or art or any other field, you know that it's by asking questions. It's by going, could this be done better? Is there another approach? Is there more that can be said about this? It's those people that go on to discover new things and more. And so we need to understand, even with the resurrection, that we never have a grasp of it totally in our hand. There's a healthy aspect of leaving Jesus' empty tomb the way the women did in Mark. There, the women go to the tomb, and we read that trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. I read that and go, that is worship. I love the story when Jesus is on the boat. And he's sleeping and the disciples are panicking. It says that the disciples were afraid because of the storm. And they thought the storm was going to swamp the boat and they were going to sink. And so they woke Jesus up. 
and Jesus stood up. The disciples tell him about their panic, and then Jesus gets to the front of the boat and says to the storm, be still, and the waters become like glass. The clouds part, the sun shines through, and the storm is stilled, and then it says the disciples were terrified. I love that. Jesus didn't take away their fear. They were afraid of the storm, and once they woke Jesus up and Jesus stopped the storm, now they were terrified of Jesus. He's even more frightening than the storm. Who is this one that can stop a storm by his very words? Who is this one that has risen from the dead and so trembling and bewildered the women left the tomb? In trying to understand the resurrection, which we are going to talk about today, we have to begin by saying we don't understand so much of it. There's a certain trembling and bewilderment that must always remain with us. When we say the Apostles' Creed together, we affirm as a church that we believe that on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. It is foundational to Christian belief that on the third day, the day that we celebrate once a year on Easter, Jesus rose from the dead. It's so important that without this being true, we might as well just all go to Tim Hortons right now. There's no point of even gathering together. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if Christ was not raised, then all of our preaching is useless. And your trust in God is useless. I might as well quit my job, it's useless. And all the trust that you're putting in God, that's useless also. And we apostles, Paul writing, would be lying about God, for we have said that God raised him from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead, as some are insisting that there is. Paul says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, listen to the results of that. Then your faith is useless. There's no idea in the Bible that having faith in faith is good for you. Just believing something, even though it's not true, is still kind of a good moral boost. Paul never goes down that road and says if it is Historically not true, your faith is useless. Why? He goes on and says, because you are still under condemnation for your sins. The reason why it's useless is because if you believe it's true and it's not true, even if it makes you feel better, it doesn't matter because you are still under the condemnation of your sins. The only way that you are forgiven of your sins and set free is if this really happened. And therefore, he says, in that case, all who have died believing in Christ have perished. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless, your sins have not been forgiven, everyone that's gone before us and have died in Christ, well, they've just simply perished, that's the end of them, we're never going to see them anymore. And if we have hope in Christ only for this life, 
We are the most miserable people in the world. Paul doesn't soften the blow here, but says that if Christ has not been raised, everything we stand for, our hope for what happens after we die, the hope of sins being forgiven, the hope of being reconnected with loved ones, the hope even for this life now, it's all nothing, meaningless. We might as well, as he says in this passage when he goes on, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow it's all over. Echoing Paul's teachings, 40 years later, Clement also wrote to Corinth. And in his letter, which has come down to us as 1 Clement, he writes this to the church in Corinth, and he does the same thing, and points the church continually to the resurrection. He says, think, my dear friends, how the Lord offers us proof after proof that there is going to be a resurrection of which he made Jesus Christ the first fruits by raising him from the dead. My friends, look at the pictures of resurrection going on at this very moment. The day and the night show us an illustration of it. Or take the fruits of the earth. How and in what way does a crop come into being? When the sower goes out and drops a seed into the ground, it falls to the earth, shriveled and bare, and decays. But presently, the power of the Lord's providence raises it from decay. And from that single grain, a host of others springs up and yields their fruit. Clement is trying to say that God has put his picture, his illustration of resurrection in all the things of creation. To remind us of it each and every day that God is a God who does renew. He's a God who does bring life out of death. And so why would he not be able to do it with Jesus Christ? In fact, with Jesus Christ is when he does it to its fullest extent. He's the first fruit. Everything that is to be life-oriented to come. All through the generations of the church, Jesus' resurrection has been upheld as a historical reality. Foundational for the church. It either happened or it didn't happen. There's no middle ground. If it didn't happen, find a new religion. If it did happen, you better put all of your bedding chips into this basket. Without the resurrection, everything falls apart. Without the resurrection, Jesus was just a martyred prophet who somehow had his body either taken away, thrown in a ditch somewhere, chewed up by dogs or vultures. Without an actual resurrected Jesus... We don't have God affirming this one as the Lord of Lords. It was the resurrection in which God designated and declared Jesus to be Messiah. King of kings. The one who, the things that he said and did were affirmed in the resurrection. He is the son of God. He's the word made flesh. To say that You're a Christian 
but that you don't believe in the resurrection is like being an electrician who doesn't believe in electricity. Or it's like being a doctor who doesn't believe in medicine. I heard a lecture by a Jewish rabbi a few years ago, and he was just astounded by other Jewish rabbis that he had heard that were denying that the Exodus ever happened, or that Moses ever existed. And this particular Jewish rabbi, as he was being interviewed, he said on the program, he says, it doesn't make any sense to me. He says, you can't be a Jew and not believe in the Exodus. You can't be of the Jewish faith and not believe in Moses. That's, that's the very foundation. In the same way, according to Paul, you cannot be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection. The author John Updike wrote a poem some years back about the resurrection, and he put it like this. Make no mistake. If he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules renit, the amino acids rekindle, then the church will fall. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our convenience sake out of our own sense of beauty. Lest awakened in one unthinkable hour we are embarrassed by the miracle. I, I love his line. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous. Let's not tame the story of the resurrection. And that's why we must maintain a healthy lack of understanding as to what it all means. Not that we doubt that it happened, but that we realize that we will never fully comprehend what it all means. So that trembling and bewildered, like the women, we worship with some of those same emotions. And so as we do that, let's continue on and look in chapter 20 at verses 19 to 23. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing among them and he said, peace be with you. And definitely, if suddenly Jesus stood among me, I would need to hear those words. I'd probably also need to change my underwear if that happened. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. 
They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you, which I would need again. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, there's so much that could be said about the resurrection. We're going to look at just a few things from this passage. As we see Jesus now standing among his disciples, showing them again his hands and his feet, he's proving to them. We read in other accounts where he ate fish in front of them. He's showing them, I'm not a ghost, I'm not a spirit, I'm not a phantom, I'm not a vision. I am the real resurrected Jesus in the body. That's what resurrection means. It means bodily resurrection. And so he showed them his body. He let them even touch his body. And as he did that, he proved that the resurrection makes us witnesses to the reality that Christ is alive. That this is not something that the early disciples dreamt up. They were not, at this time, hiding away, afraid, smoking some marijuana to try to calm their nerves, and had some kind of collective hallucinetic vision. This was real. It wasn't something that just took place in their minds. It took place in objective reality outside of them, which is what means they were witnesses of these things. If something happens just in your mind, uh, you cannot be a witness to that. I mean, I could tell somebody something happened in my mind, but a witness, even according to Old Testament scriptures, always needs the pluralness of witness, witnesses, for it to be verified. There can never be just one witness. Witnesses, so that I saw it, he saw it, they saw it, we all saw something. The resurrection makes us and lets us know that the early disciples were witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. That's why John, who wrote this gospel, also wrote a letter later, 1 John, and it begins like this. The one who existed from the beginning is the one we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. He is Jesus Christ, the word of life. John is saying, I'm a witness to this with my very senses. I heard it with my ear, touched it with my hands, saw it with my eyes. That's why Christianity has always been such an empirical faith. It's why Christianity has always been at the forefront of things like the advancement of science and the arts. As opposed to many of the New Age type of religions or Eastern religions that are all sort of in your mind or all kind of spirits and things like that. Christianity has always been about the physical, tangible reality. They even built their case on that. I'm writing this gospel about what I heard, about what I saw, about what I touched. The same type of data that I use for a scientific experiment. 
That is what I want to write to you about. Peter, another one of Jesus' disciples, began one of his letters saying this, We were not making up clever stories when we told you about the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming again. We have seen his majestic splendor with our own eyes. He's emphasizing, we're not writing fairy tales. We're not sitting around like Hans Christian Andersen and writing cleverly invented stories with good morals to teach you about life. We're telling you about something we saw with our own eyes. We're writing down reality. You can choose to believe them or not, but they were emphatic that this was a historical reality. And people still meet Christ today. Now, the way people meet Jesus today is certainly different from the physical touch, see, hear way of his disciples 2,000 years ago. But every baptismal testimony that we hear tells you the story of individuals who are still encountering Jesus. And we have the hope, because of the truth of the past, that one day we who have experienced him will touch, see, hear him in full reality again one day when he comes back. We sang about that when we sang in Christ alone. That it will be a reality for us one day, not just in our minds, but in truth, physical truth. From the biblical witnesses through the story of church history and our corporate and personal experience today, we know that Christ lives in reality. And he reigns in reality. And Christ will come back. And we will follow suit in being raised as well, in reality, to live with him forever. The disciples are saying, we're witnesses to this. The second thing we see in this passage is that the resurrection brought about the forgiveness of sin. And we sometimes forget the second part of that, this, that it also brought about the ability to pronounce forgiveness on others. And when we read scripture, the two always go together. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you refuse to forgive them, they are unforgiven. At the end of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says the same thing. He says, forgive us that we are, he teaches us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. Jesus tells parables about the rich man who, or the king who forgives the debt of one person. And then that person whose debt is forgiven goes out and refuses to forgive a smaller debt. And then the consequences, because that person refuses to forgive after being for forgiven. It shows the consequences of refusing to do that. The two go together. We, because of the resurrection, have been forgiven by God, which means we've been empowered to extend forgiveness to others. And our willingness and ability to do that directly relates to how much we 
it shows that we've experienced forgiveness ourselves. The disciples had the power to forgive sins. They had the power to pronounce forgiveness over other people when they repented before God as well, the way we can today. When you confess your sins one to another, we have the ability to say, because of your confession, God has forgiven you through Jesus Christ. It's what is sometimes referred to as the keys to the kingdom that the church has been given. That those who confess their sin through Christ, the church can rightly say to them that they're forgiven, they can be free from guilt, they can be free from shame, they can be free from perpetual self-harm and abuse, that they truly and in reality have had the slate cleaned and can start a new life. Along with this, Jesus also promised to send the Holy Spirit. The resurrection enabled us to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that person in the Trinity of God who strengthens us, he convicts us, he coaches us, he encourages us to live out the reality of resurrection life. We've been set free by the resurrection, but now the Holy Spirit is given to us so that we can begin to live it in reality. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is the sanctifier. He's given to us to guarantee the outcome of our life, which is to be right with Christ. It's interesting to compare the disciples here with the book of Acts to get a picture of what the Holy Spirit can do in someone's life. Here, before Jesus appears in the room, they're cowering, they're behind locked doors, they're fearful. And then filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5, these same disciples, this is what we read. Then they were brought before the council. Remember, in John, that's why they were hiding. They were afraid of the authorities. Now, the very thing they were afraid of is happening. They are now brought before the council. And the high priest says, Didn't we tell you never again to teach in this man's name? Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about Jesus, and you intend to blame us for his death. And then we hear, The apostles, no longer in fear and cowering behind a locked door through their spokesman Peter, replying, we must obey God rather than any human authority. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It makes us bold when it would not logically seem that anyone could be bold. It fills us with a power and a hope and a trust in God that only comes from God himself. The story goes on to answer why they became so bold, and that is because they said the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. 
Because the God of our ancestors, the same God you claim to believe in, raised Jesus from the dead because of the resurrection, and now because of that resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit, we are here proclaiming to you the power of God filled with power ourselves. We must obey God rather than human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by crucifying him. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this to give the people of Israel an opportunity to turn from their sins and to turn to God so their sins would be forgiven. Essentially, what they're saying in their speech at the council in Acts is the same thing we read in John when Jesus appears. The resurrection makes us witnesses to the reality that Christ is alive. And now in Acts, they're saying, we are witnesses that Christ is alive. The God of our ancestors is the one who raised him. The resurrection brought about the forgiveness of sin and the ability to pronounce it to others. What do the disciples say in Acts? They say that he did this to give you an opportunity to turn from your sin and to turn to God so that your sin could be forgiven. And the resurrection enabled them to receive and enabled us to receive the Holy Spirit in which they were able to proclaim these things with such boldness. By giving his followers the Holy Spirit, Jesus has empowered us to live for him. Now we don't fully understand, just like the resurrection, all this Holy Spirit stuff. We also don't, Jerry and I were were talking about this the other week, we also don't understand why Jesus had to go away in order to send the Holy Spirit, which is what he says. I will go away. It'll be better for you if I go away because then I can send the Holy Spirit. And Jerry said, maybe Pastor Jerry's a bit greedy. Jerry's like, why can't we just have both? Why couldn't Jesus stay and have the Holy Spirit? But uh, I would agree with him too. Wouldn't it be better? At least from our perspective. Why did Jesus say, I've got to go away so that the Holy Spirit can come? There's a lot of questions about the Holy Spirit. And we'll get into some of this some more when we get to Pentecost and we deal with the Holy Spirit. To talk more about who he is and what he's done. But we need to understand that there's always still questions. Yes, our sins have been forgiven. Yes, we have witnesses to the reality of this. Yes, we've been filled with the Holy Spirit, and yet at the same time, we've got questions. We don't always understand, and there's some lingering doubts. But that's what it means to worship in trust and lack of understanding. Because of Jesus' resurrection, your sins are forgiven. You're no longer locked in bondage. No matter what you've done, your past can be restored. Your life can begin new. You can live in victory. You can be enabled to forgive other people. You can let go of the grudges and the bitterness and the things that are keeping you down in the quicksand. Because of the resurrection, you are a living witness to the fact that Christ is alive today. That people still meet him. That he still changes people's lives. 
Because of the resurrection, you can be filled with the Holy Spirit, one who comes alongside of you as a coach, as an advocate, as an encourager, as a trainer, and the one who gives you the continual assurance that you will be with God and no one can snatch you out of his hand. All of these things have been given to you and are promised to you because of the resurrection, and we can believe it because the resurrection really happened. All this was sealed for you. We believe it even though we can't fully comprehend it. And so the right response is that we worship. We bow down and we proclaim, but we always do it with fear and trembling and a lack of full understanding. As Paul wrote, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for sending Jesus. Your love for us, so undeserved, and yet you loved us undeservedly. And through Jesus, you came to offer us an opportunity to live in a way that loves you back. You've forgiven us our sins and you have given us a new life by proving that you are the life-giving God. Not only do you create out of nothing, but you can even bring life out of death. And you've offered us that life. You've even empowered us through the gift of your Holy Spirit to live that life so that we can live to the glory of God and that we can live in love with you And we can live knowing what it means to love and to forgive one another. May we, God, go from here today, filled with your Holy Spirit, living in the power of your resurrection. Amen.